Open your Bibles, uh, if you have them with you, to that first chapter in Philippians. Philippians 1, we're going to be reading verses 12 through 18. If you don't have your Bible, it's in page 980 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We got through Paul's prayer for the Philippians in verses 1 through 11, and we're going to go through 12 through 18 today. So, Philippians 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the word of God. We thank you for your spirit, which enlivens us. And Father, bless your preaching. May we walk away different than we came. In Christ's name, amen. By the way, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. The group had gathered that afternoon believing that they were living lives of living miracles, because they were. They were gathered together for a fellowship meal after the morning service, but they were mostly there to count money and to count lots of it. Reminiscent to that scene which most of us saw over the holidays in It's a Wonderful Life, as the basket continued to get more and more money thrown in it, so did the stories begin to flow. If you remember, he wasn't even going to come here, and it was the Holy Spirit that came that told him to come to Macedonia. Yeah, that's right, and you know, you, do you remember, Lydia, there were only about 10 of us in this whole city. There wasn't even a synagogue. Yeah, that's right. And we were meeting down by that river where we would have lunch and we'd pray and let the kids play in the nice day. And, and then just one Sabbath, he showed up. And our lives have not been the same. Hey, you remember that slave girl? What was her name? I don't remember her name. That demon-possessed crazy girl? Yeah. And remember how he got just so annoyed at her and finally just had had enough, turned around and said, come out of her, and that demon came out. Yeah, and that's, that's when all the trouble started, remember? Yeah. 
He and Silas got beat and thrown in jail and all of that. Yeah, that was, what, eight, nine years ago. So, great lunch, Lydia. You guys have a total yet? Yeah, we do. And you're not going to believe how much it is. This, of course, is not only the background of this church in Philippi from Acts chapter 16. It's the background for our text tonight, our six verses. The money was for an offering for that man, their father in the faith, the Apostle Paul. He started the church there. He visited on a couple of occasions after that. And word was that he was in Rome and was in jail, needed some money, and they gathered it. And they gathered a lot of it. It was already decided that uh, Epaphroditus would take that money to Paul in Rome which was about 800 miles away, probably about six to eight weeks of walking, depending on the weather, to get to Rome. Epaphroditus, we hear about him a couple of times in the New Testament, but it was most likely that he was a retired Roman soldier. After all, who could trust that all of that money could be safely taken on foot 800 miles, unless it was from somebody like a retired Roman soldier. So off he went. And they waited. And they waited. And they waited. And then there were murmurs of Epaphroditus being sick. There were rumors that things weren't going well there, and they prayed. And they worried. And they worried. And they prayed. And then there was another gathering. Because he just came back. And what we have in front of us is the letter from Paul back to those people. And all of the things that we just talked about are addressed. He addresses Epaphroditus being sick. He addresses uh, the the, the fact that uh, they were worried and that Paul wanted to send him back, etc., etc. So what we have at the beginning of the, of the chapter, is the prayers of Paul for them. And then we get to our text. And we can imagine Epaphroditus standing up in church and reading this text. And what we're going to hear from Epaphroditus tonight uh, is a message that's very similar to what uh, he would have told us or Paul would have told us if he was sending this letter, I believe titled this message, The Sovereign Advance of the Gospel, and that's exactly what it is. And isn't that message, The Sovereign Advance of the Gospel, or The Sovereign God Calling Men Unto Himself, not only the theme of this text, it's the theme of the entire Scriptures. It's the theme of the entire Bible. And we'll see this under three headings tonight. We'll see... An unplanned providence in verses 12 through 14. We'll then see an unexpected opposition in verses 15 through 17. And then we'll end with Paul's normal unrelenting joy in verse 18. First, an unplanned providence. 
Turn with me, if you will, to, the, to Acts chapter 28 as we get the background of what this imprisonment uh, by the Apostle Paul actually was. We know from, the, from verse 1 of Acts 27, there was a Roman guard with Paul throughout that entire shipwreck incidents and all of that trouble that went on and being bit by the hand and all that traveling to Rome. He was under house arrest then, and he makes it all the way to Rome. And look at Acts chapter 28, verse 16. <clears throat> and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. This was a house arrest for Paul. Go a little bit forward to uh, verses 30 and 31. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense. This is what that money from the Philippians was to pay for. His renting in what they would call at that time an insula. There were about 50,000 of these little apartments all over Rome. The most expensive ones were where near, near the house of Caesar and the area of the Senate, and that's probably where Paul was. And he had rented one of these insulars. And there's still some that are still there in Rome today. They are mostly just single flats. The more expensive ones were on the first floor. And they were only about 1,200 square feet. And in that, you could have a little area for kitchen with a little ventilation. You could have a place to sit, a place to sleep. And that was about it. So Paul was renting this while he was under house arrest. And what that meant was that Paul was literally chained his right hand to the left hand of one of the Praetorian guards, one of Caesar's guards. And we'll talk about what they were in a second. But the chains were not that heavy, and they were about six feet long. So Paul could do his work. And we see from verse 31 that Paul proclaims the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance, welcoming, in verse 30, all who came to him. So his existence, while waiting trial before Caesar, was to be in his insula that he had rented, with people bringing him food, people coming to visit him, being chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. Now, the Roman guard went on a night and day watch system. And depending on the time of the year, uh, it was not necessarily 12 hours on, 12 hours off, but it was according to sunlight most of the time. So you can imagine, around 6, 7 in the morning, they would have a change of guard. Somebody would come, and he would unhook himself uh, from the guard, snap him on, and see you later. And Paul might be sleeping, he might be praying, he might be doing, but this guard for, for the next 12 hours would be there until he was relieved somewhere around 7 p.m. So when, when Paul says in, uh, in our text, <clears throat> in verse 12, back to them, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really or actually served to advance the gospel. He knew that they were worried about him, and he wanted to say, I, I have to tell you, it's all good. I, yes, I am under house arrest. Yes, we'll get to Epaphroditus a little bit later in the text, but 
I want to let you know that this is really advancing the gospel, and he gives two examples to them. And the first example is 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Those are those two-a-day guys chained to him. It has been known throughout the entire imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He said, it's a blessing what's going on. And he is, and he is seeing fruit, etc. As a matter of fact, if you turn very quickly, not to spoil the end if you don't like spoilers, but look at the very last uh, chapter, uh, Philippians 4, look at verse 22. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So there were people of Caesar's household that had become Christians under this two years of Apostle Paul preaching to these guys. And we can imagine how it went. But he was excited about the fact that this was an unplanned blessing. He had no idea that this would, that this, that this would happen, and he was just satisfied to be there writing, reading, talking to brothers, introducing the people to the, to the guards, etc., etc. So an unplanned providence causes this. I don't know if the name John Harper means anything to you. The date, April 15th, 1912, might. That was the night that the Titanic went down in the North Atlantic. And John Harper was a Scottish missionary, preacher, evangelist, and he was on his way by invitation to Moody Memorial Church to preach for D.L. Moody, a series of messages. He was traveling with his sister and his six-year-old daughter, his wife having died about six months before, and being a friend of D.L. Moody, D.L. Moody wanted to minister to him and have him come, so he was on his way. And as the story goes, Harper made sure that his daughter and his sister were on the boat, and it was told that he was screaming, you know, make sure that the women, children, and the unsaved get on the boats. And he was going around witnessing, and they finally had to say, John, get your life jacket on. It, it, we're about to go down, and they went down. And the story goes, on the fourth anniversary of the uh, sinking of the Titanic, they had a meeting of the survivors, and this fella named Crane came there, and he could not wait to testify that he was the last convert of John Harper. In that freezing water in the, in the uh, Atlantic, they were holding on to a small piece of wood, and Harper was getting weaker and weaker and witnessing. And he said, I want to tell you what he told me. He told the survivors of the Titanic. And they were just on the edge of their seats. And he, he said, he told me the Christmas story all over again. And I gave my heart to Christ. And the announcer or the MC said, thank you very much. And all of a sudden, three other hands went up. I thought I was the last convert. I thought I was the last convert. Four gave the same testimony that before this man went down, he testified of Christ, a truly unplanned providence. 
And that man of God from Scotland slipped into eternity that way. We have unplanned providences all the time, and I fear many times we miss them. But not only an unplanned providence, look at verse 15 as as Paul continues this discussion. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. This is why I'm in these chains, is for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ. I want you to listen to this. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Oh, Paul. You're reading hearts, you judgmental man. How do you know what the attitude of these brothers are? Now, before you say, well, these were false prophets, um, turn with me very, very quickly to the beginning of chapter 3, which we'll get to too. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you as no trouble to me and is safe for you. Here's Paul addressing false prophets with false doctrine. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul had no kind, soft, and gentle words for false prophets, just the opposite. These brothers were preaching Christ in his own denomination, if he would have had one. These are people that he knew These were good men. And we say, how could that happen? How could they take the Apostle Paul being in chains and take that to their advantage, to steal people away, to to have people into their ministry? And I would just say uh, to you, brothers and sisters, I think this is more common than we think. The fact of not only sectarian thought, but even within our own kind, jealousy. Uh, a, a, uh, a, combat, a combativeness that is quiet inside. It's a, I'm really right, everybody else is wrong, and, you know, God should be giving it to me. It's jealousy. Stephen Charnock, we talked a little bit about in Sunday school, says this of envy, and I think it also answers the question to why Paul felt this way. Stephen Charnock says, envy is simply one thing. It's a denial of the doctrine of providence. Think of that. Envy is one thing. It's the denial of the doctrine of providence. If any group of Christians should not be jealous, if any group of Christians should not be envious, it would be those of us that believe in the providence of God and the sovereignty of God. I want to tell you right now, if in 10 years, Cornerstone, uh, our friend Matt Wood in Anna, 
Mark Belanger in Prosper are running 1,200 people, I will tell you, hallelujah, amen, praise the Lord, we're there. And that's how it should be. There should be not a bit of jealousy, especially from us. Now, if you believe in a, in, in a gospel of, of, uh, of health and wealth, if you believe what you do is going to get come back to you in spades, well, I can see a, a little room for jealousy. I understand why one preacher uh, is jealous of another one's Gulfstream 60 when he has only a Gulfstream 40. I understand that. That makes sense. Not where we are, brothers and sisters. And we have to work hard at it. Whatever the Lord does here, it's for his sake. Whatever he does anywhere else is for his sake too. So let's take that and live that way. Now, why didn't Paul worry about that? I think he didn't worry for one simple reason. Yes, the thing about Charnock said about envy is true. But the other thing is this. Paul actually believed, because he was an example, that God actually does call men and put them in the ministry. He believed that. And if somebody was preaching Christ out of insincerity, uh, with jealousy and bitterness, God will take him out. What are we worried about? God puts men in, God can take men out. And Paul says, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerity, and he doesn't bat an eye. It could be that he had many of these people actually visiting him from time to time in that prison cell and telling him about the things that were going on. I don't know. But you notice he doesn't name any names there. He leaves that up to the Lord as well. An unexpected opposition. Finally, let's look at an unrelenting joy. You know, I think part of the Christian life, the older I get in it, I think one of the, one of the central tenets of the Christian life is learning to live with disappointment, learning to live with heartache. I prayed with a church member just after church today whose brother is having problems with the law. And she was fighting back, just bursting into tears. As a matter of fact, one time she said, I feel like bursting into tears. But she also said, this could be, though, what turns this brother back to Christ. He was arrested we don't know. We don't know about those things. But we do know that the Apostle Paul had an unrelenting joy. It's the theme of the entire book, isn't it? I love the story. I think either Jordan or Seth told it the other day, but if you've ever been to Oxford in England and, and been on Broad Street, you will see right in the middle of the street, the streets haven't changed much in 400 plus years, right in the middle of Broad Street, you'll see this, and I've seen it stood there, a little plaque about this big, and all that had was a little couple of different colored rocks on the road and a little cross on the road. And it was of that, it was at that exact spot that Bishops Ridley and Latimer 
were burned to death under Bloody Mary. And those famous words that uh, Latimer said as they were lighting him, Ridley first, be of good comfort, my brother Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust will never go out. Even in the midst of their own death. We're going to see this in, in, in the book of Daniel in short order. Where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, throw us in the fiery furnace. We believe that he can deliver us. But if he doesn't, that's okay. As we get ready to close, can you tell or do you look for in your life patterns of unplanned gospel providence? Would you look for being delayed for a flight, being fired from a job, uh, being frustrated at something at work? Would you take those opportunities and look at how there might be a gospel providence associated with that? I think we need to develop gospel eyes and ears to look for these things. And sometimes you see them, don't you? And secondly, do we actually believe that God is sovereignly calling people to himself? Some of us in this room have loved ones who do not know Christ. How do we react to that? Do we look for tiny gospel moments? How do we handle things like that? It was 7 p.m., right on target. The new man came in. And we see Paul sitting there talking. Epaphroditus is there. They're talking about uh, him leaving the next morning to go to back to Philippi, what he's going to say, and messages other than the letter that he would like to give. And all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door, and here's a new one. Paul turns. Do I know you? Doesn't say anything. Walks over. <laughs> Chains himself. Go. Paul turns to him and says, I'm, I'm Paul. What's your name? And he says, Marcellus. Well, Marcellus, I want to introduce you to my friend here, Epaphroditus, and here's this person and this person. And they were so kind to us to bring this amazing feast. Would you join us? Now, we have wine. Okay, I'll take a little bit. <laughs> so Marcellus partakes. Paul's talking and Unexpectedly, he turns to Marcellus and says, so how long have you been in the, in the guard? It's awful hard to get in, wasn't it? To get into that Praetorian guard, that's the actual word used here for this guard. It was the elite of the elite. There were two legions of these men, which was about 4,000 of them in, the, in and around the city. And to get into the Praetorian palace guard, you had to have served in the army and been been done well in that service, and this was the last thing that you did before you retired. So all of these were chiseled 
uh, Roman soldiers. And Marcella downs his wine really quickly and says, hey, that's pretty good, I'll take another one of those. And he's talking and Paul said, so Marcella, tell me your story. Where were you born? And it starts. Another one. Another chance. Another unplanned providence. Unexpected opposition is going on. Paul doesn't care. Here's an unplanned providence. Here's a man. He has the next 10 hours or more with. When Paul has to go, they go out to an external latrine and the chain's long enough for Paul to go in and he goes out. And when he has to go, Paul goes with him for the next 10 to 12 hours. But it's an unplanned providence. It's an unexpected opposition. And Paul is doing it with an unrelenting joy. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this man of God. What an example he is to us that his eyes are never on himself. They're always on service to you and his, and his calling to you. Oh Lord, may we keep our eyes open for those unplanned providences. Give us the words to say. Give us a heart for the gospel. Lord, let us not worry about others who may oppose us or even jealous or envious. Lord, just let's do like Paul and Love them and and rejoice in the gospel being preached, knowing you put men in the ministry, you take them out. And Lord, give us that unrelenting joy that this soldier had. Make it so, in Christ's name, amen. Amen.